welcome to podcast 117 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Ed Vasey and I'm the culture editor at Country and Townhouse. And today we're going to be talking about art. The capital is absolutely full of exciting happenings over the next few months. The National Portrait Gallery is going to reopen towards the end of June with new work by David Hockney and an exhibition of never-before-seen photographs of the Beatles by Paul McCartney taken in the 60s. We've also got the summer exhibition coming up at the Royal Academy, which opens on the 13th of June, coordinated by the well-known British painter David Renfrey with the theme Only Connect, a quote taken from E.M. Forster's Howard End. David Renfrey, now 80, was surprised and delighted to get the call and is determined to use the exhibition to stress the need for empathy in an increasingly disparate world. Plus, his own chandelier paintings will be on display at the exhibition too. There's also Diva soon to open at the V&A, exploring performers through the ages, from Elton John and Whitney Houston to Billie Holiday and Vivian Lee. But today we're here to talk about the Rossettis, an exhibition of over 150 works currently on at Tate Britain, celebrating the romance and radicalism of the Rossetti generation. Dante Gabrielle, Christina and Elizabeth, here to tell us all about it. We're delighted to have the curator, Carol Jacobi. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's lovely to have you with us, Carol. And now this is the first retrospective of Dante Gabriel Rossetti to be held at the Tate and the largest exhibition of his work in two decades. So why now? Well, it's, a, it's surprising that we've taken so long because we have, you know, cano- the canonical collection of his work. And it's also the first time we've ever held, um, we brought together a, a retrospective collection of Elizabeth Siddle's work. And she hasn't had, that hasn't happened for three decades, although there was a, a wonderful exhibition in 2018 at Whittick Manor. But I'm really glad in a way that it is a bit belated because I think if we had done it sort of even 10 years ago, we wouldn't have done it the same way. It's a very unusual exhibition in a way because the three protagonists loved each other very much. They weren't just close as an artistic, um, you know, collaborative artistic community, but they, they loved each other very much. And so bringing them together, uh, bringing their work together has showed us all kinds of new things uh, about what they were doing and the way they would their ideas were jumping off each other. We already knew that Christina was the sort of, in a way, the leading figure. She was the best known of the three in her lifetime, and she still is now. But what we didn't know, and it's really only emerged over the last five years or so, is how influential Elizabeth's um, work was uh, in the in in their overall development, the two avant-gardes that the Rossettis were involved in, uh, in in the Victorian period. And so that's been a revelation. I think it's really interesting because she was astonishingly, we forget this, she was only 16 when she published her first volume of poetry, Christina. Christina, yeah. I should, I'm just going to say a quick word about, about names. Um, we we, um, we uh, had big debates about what we were going to call these artists because they've all got the last same last name, which is a bit of a problem. And we just decided to go in the end for Gabriel, uh, Elizabeth and Christina because that's what they called each other. So I hope you don't mind if those are the names I use um, um, in this podcast. But yeah, Christina, um, she she published 42 poems when she was only 16. And I think that's a, partly the way these children were brought up. It was a very unusual household. Uh, it was an Anglo-Italian household. Both their parents were scholars. Uh, Christina was actually her her father's sort of academic assistant from the age of about 12 or 14. And um, they were all encouraged to 
just to imagine that they had something to say and that their voices would be heard and to make art and to make poetry and to... All of this would have been very unusual at the time, though, wouldn't it? I think so. I mean, it wasn't so unusual that they would be working. Um, although they were a middle-class family, they were a middle-class family on hard times. So... Um, all the children were working from their mid-teens, early teens, um, and which I think is quite sort of sobering to think about now. And Gabriel was the only one who was allowed to stay on in education, I think because they, he was uh, uh, the eldest boy and the one that they sort of thought was going to be this the genius. But um, yes, it, it, it was unusual that they had such um, scholarly ambitions. And all four of the children, there was an older sister, Martha, and a younger sister, brother, William, they all spoke fluent, fluent Italian. They all published um, translations of Dante and books about Dante Alighieri, the medieval Italian poet, during their lifetimes, as well as everything else. <laughs> And what I hadn't realised is that you're you're showing uh, Christine's book of poetry alongside Gabriel Gabriel's incredibly famous painting, The Annunciation, and she and the younger brother William have posed it for the painting. Yeah, and it's such a fascinating painting because um, the, uh, the, um, Christina and her sister Maria very much used. There was a lot of new ideas around religion at this, this at this time. They very much used religion as a a way of living their lives. And, you know, neither of them married and that gave them a great deal of independence they wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, The religion gave them uh, work. Uh, They did a lot of work in the community, what we now call social work through their religion. Whereas Gabriel, and so particularly at this, you know, when when, um, Christina was a teenager, I think she she had um, a serious period of mental illness. I think she very much used religion as a way of living, whereas Gabriel was an atheist. And so the idea that he painted his sister as the Virgin Mary on this sort of cusp <laughs> of womanhood, just when she was on the cusp of womanhood, in fact, it was the same year she received her first proposal marriage, um, and his brother playing the playing Gabriel, is, is really fascinating. And it's very, it, you can see he's been looking at medieval enunciations, but he turns the whole uh um, composition around so we're looking in Christina's face uh, and seeing exactly how she's reacting to the angel and he also changes the setting to her bedroom so it really is a kind of very personal and almost quite intrusive moment. The other extraordinary exhibit that you have is the poem that was exhumed from the grave from Elizabeth's great... Tell us about that. Um, well, um, so Gabriel um, very much thought him... He was a painter-poet, as was Elizabeth. They both wrote poetry as well as making art. And um, after Elizabeth died, um, when Elizabeth died, Gabriel did something that I think many people do, which was to leave something in 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 the coffin uh with elizabeth so he he there's a little leather notebook of poems that had, were particularly meaningful and then seven years later uh he decided he wanted to actually publish his first collection of poetry amazing he was 42 when he collects uh, published his first collection of poetry whereas christina was 16 and uh he didn't um exhume elizabeth but his agent did. Um, it was very unusual to exhume a, a coffin, and they had to get special uh, permission from the Home Secretary. And it was, and uh, yes, it was done at night time. And he immediately began editing the poems, and they did 
they, they were published in his first collection. And of course, you can imagine this has become hugely mythologized mm. and it's really difficult to pick apart what's what was real and what wasn't. But it does, it's what I think one thing that is real is that although many of the Rossettis are buried together in the same grave in um, Highgate Cemetery, he absolutely refused to be and he's um, buried in Butchington on the sea uh, and I think you know that must be significant and I feel he probably it was something that haunted him. We've got a wonderful extract in the exhibition from Ken Russell's 1967 biopic Elizabeth uh, Siddle and Dante um, uh, Gabriel Rossetti and and he sort of there's this amazing dream sequence where where Gabriel is haunted by um, both Jane and Elizabeth and the memory of her of, of the coffin of the poems going into the coffin. Why was he so afraid of being buried with with the others? And why? I don't, why? I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I don't, yeah. but I I can't really say. And the other thing that happened after Elizabeth died was it's only just been published. The um the actual notes that William um Michael Rossetti took of many seances that they conducted um, with this sort of ostensibly with the idea of, of, you know, getting in touch with Elizabeth. But again, it's really hard to see how, how serious they really are. When you, when you read the notes, they're quite funny. They sort of, they're, they're, they're not saying, asking questions like, do you still love me? What's it like in heaven? The sort of questions you think you would ask. They're sort of often asking questions like, you know, what's my um, brother's middle name? And sort of various questions like that to check that the that the spirit that they're speaking to is is really genuine. It's like <laughs> ringing up a bank nowadays. <laughs> like your exactly. security questions. They probably, had, they, they probably had more success with the sales than you would with a bank today. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but they also transformed sort of, if I can put it this way, interior design. I mean, the exhibition also shows off wallpaper yeah. that they designed. Yes. Um, yeah, so... Um, and I think the sort of turning point for this was uh, when... Elizabeth and Gabriel got married, which was, you know, 10 years into their uh, relationship. Uh, and so they were all sort of um, creating new environments for their homes. They didn't want it to be this overstuffed Victorian style. They didn't want it to be the style of their parents. And they just, and they designed furniture. Uh, they designed um, clothing, Elizabeth and Jane adapted sort of working styles of clothing to a more public kind of clothing so that it didn't have they weren't encumbered by crinolines and corsets and caps and all those things and of course one of the other couples that were getting married was Jane Morris and William Morris and uh, and you know and so they started designing uh well, Gabriel was actually the first design wallpaper we found this wonderful wallpaper design that he made which uh, was basically just floor to ceiling trees so that the wall is t that the room is turned into a kind of apple orchard in the dusk and the stars are hanging in the branches alongside the apples it's absolutely beautiful uh, and we've actually created it from his notes uh, for the exhibition and then as we know you know a couple of years later uh, William Morris sort of made it much more practical go at designing wallpaper and and you know those are still available today yes yeah, so Gabriel left a drawing and very uh, particular color notes which we were quite puzzled by we we're thinking is this going to work? But when we actually, um, this uh, uh, contemporary artist, Eliana Kerr, uh, made it, um, 
made it for us and um, turned it into a, a proper colour wallpaper design. And it's beautiful. He really knew what he was doing. Um, Presumably we can buy it at Tate Britain. <laughs> no, you can view it at Tate Britain. Um, that's but, what I was um, going to ask. I think, I think you should been, sell it. <laughs> yes, I think it would be, it would be beautiful uh, if, 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 if we could use it. Yes, yes. <laughs> How much did it percolate kind of Victorian society, their kind of um, new approach to interior design and clothing? Well, it was very much, you know, pushed forward by, by Morris. Uh, and and um, Gabriel was one of the first, um, was part of, one of the founding mem- members of the first uh, design firm he set up. And, 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 then, and then that turned into Morris & Co. And uh, yeah, so it became very successful and you could buy Morris products through Liberties, uh, which opened sort of a bit later in the century. And uh, yeah, so it, it, it definitely, and, and it was a worldwide movement. So arts and crafts designs were published in, in journals, which circulated all the way around the world and influenced you know, design in Vienna, but also in New Zealand and, and so on. How amazing. Can we talk a bit now about Elizabeth's work? Because um, you, you, you say in, in the, the introduction to the catalogue, I think, that you know, she's been so overshadowed by her mythological reputation as sort of tragic muse, and no one's really had a good, proper look at her work before. And now you're doing this for the first time. So tell us what we're going to see of her work and why it's going to change our perceptions of her. Well, I mean, she only had a ten-year career because she um, she 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 died when she was thirty-two of uh, an overdose of laudanum. She was dependent on uh, a mixture of alcohol and opium, and it was quite an interrupted career. And she was also from um, a much more working-class background. Um, so I think one of her achievements was simply to set out to become a poet and a painter from that background as a woman in Victorian London. Um, and she's left us about uh, just over 60 works. Uh, and then after she died, Gabriel actually photographed all her drawings. And um, from those photographs, we know another 27 works. So that, that's what we've got. And there are actually only eight paintings and we've got seven of them in the show. But we've also brought together her drawings and so on. But but and. Over the last sort of 20 years, um, there has been sort of much more serious research into her work. And in particular, recently, it's as soon as you see it, that's the obvious, can't understand why we didn't see it before. We can see that actually she was um, responding to Gabriel's work, as everybody always thought, but also that he was responding to hers. And there was lots of times that his drawings have ideas in them, which have come from earlier works by hers. And that's what we set out. But the really interesting bit of that is that Profitism only lasted five years. You know, it was very much based in realistic, quite a realistic style. Um, and when it fizzled out, um, they were in their mid-20s. Gabriel and Elizabeth, they just withdrew into his studio. They worked together in his studio and they made these, uh, they imagined really these um, extraordinary medieval love stories in these extraordinary jewel-like medieval settings. And a lot of the love stories very much related to their own, you know, romantic adventures and 
crises and questions, but um, but they sort of set them in this in this fantasy world. But this sort of changing uh, from the sort of quite realistic based art of the Prophets to this much more imaginative and colourful and beautiful and very preoccupied with love and music and things. Um, really, that was you know that became what we call asceticism, which is the second British avant-garde where you're painting you know what we've heard of art for art's sake and um, paintings which are really not concerned with telling stories or having morals but are just about creating these reveries of love and beauty which we know very well um, Gabriel's mythological women they're probably his most famous works that he went on to create as part of that movement um, but Elizabeth, of course, died, so we don't know what she would have gone on to do. But she was a really important part of that moment, that turning point. And where did they all come from, these? I mean, you've gathered them from all over the place. Were they just widely scattered? And they, they, Some of them with the family, um, and some of them are... Um, are so Wittick Manor has a really important collection, and so has the Ashmolean, and they've really been responsible for sort of harbouring her. One of the things in the exhibition is a, a, a sketchbook belonging, that, belonging to William Blake, full of his sort of poems and writings and drawings, which Gabriel bought um, from someone at the British Museum when he was a teenager. He borrowed the money off his brother very typically. And um, it's, I think it's fascinating to think of that sketchbook just kicking around the studio, um, because you can see that um, Elizabeth's work is very in, inspired by, by Blake's. Well, I want to upend the apple cart here because I can't really bear the pre-Raphaelites. <laughs> That's fine. What? <laughs> Although I acknowledge... Well, listen, so I acknowledge, obviously, this exhibition is outstanding if you love the pre-Raphaelites. There hasn't been one like it for 20 years. So my challenge, really, is to convince me about why I should like the pre-Raphaelites. I mean, I think they're sort of terribly kitsch, all this kind of medieval armour and all this sort of... Stuff. Oh, okay. um, That's interesting. I, I find it very off-putting, but um, I, I, one of the reasons I really wanted to do this podcast is I wanted to be won over or at least forced into a neutral position. So I, I, well, first, the first problem with this conversation is always, um, what do we mean when we say the paraphylites? And I think there's two versions. It means two different things. A lot of people use it just to mean all that. Those things going right from, you know, the very beginning of the Prophylites that, that Dickens hated, those sort of intensely realistic, almost like ugly pictures, um, to, um, to the sort of... I didn't realise Dickens had a downer on them. Oh, not, not later on, but when they first... I mean, one of the interesting things is we think about the Prophylite beauties, don't we? And those raven-haired maidens and so on, this mythology, these goddesses that, that um, Gabriel Amber and Jones created. But when they first started, one of the amazing things about them and one of the ways they departed from conventional art was what you pointed out earlier, that they used each other uh, as their models in the pictures. So their pictures are about things that preoccupied each other, like not getting on with authority, um, being in love with someone who's not in love with you, all those kind of things that preoccupied 20-year-old people. And they used the portraits of each other in those pictures. And critics like Dickens thought these people were incredibly ugly because they weren't the... <laughs> idealised, conventionally idealised figures that the artists were being taught to paint at, at the art school. But by the end of the century, of course, to be a prof, you know, they'd completely changed our idea of beauty. And Gabriel painted these very, he always sought out these very distinctive looking women, women who looked, didn't look like anybody else. Um, and, um, you know, so 
Elizabeth Siddle, she was first sort of sought after as a model because she was so boyish and the first um, part she played was Viola in Twelfth Night. Um, and, you know, obviously to Fanny Cornforth and then and then Jane Morris. But the ones you mentioned were sort of in the, in the middle um, and that's these medieval scenes that I was talking about before. And um, what I find so amazing about them is the way that many, many of them um, are an excuse to place two people together in some kind of embrace or conflict or, or, or moment and explore a, their relationship through the blood body language. So there's this beautiful little watercolour by Elizabeth Siddle of um, a lady and a, a, a knight who've obviously dawned, they've obviously been together overnight. He's about to go off and joust. So it might be the last time they see each other. And, and, and it's just, and he's taken his gloves off. So you've just got their hands together on the joust, tying this pennant together quietly. And his, his, um, pay, um, his what do they call, his um, squire is, wait, is sort of waiting outside in the morning, holding the horse. And that is a medieval scene. Elizabeth Siddle particularly liked Tennyson's view of that medieval period. She was one of the first artists to illustrate Tennyson. But, but it was, it's, of course, a scene, a very relatable scene for anybody. Um, who's sort of been parted from, from a lover. Um, and then there's a later drawing which shows that he, he, he didn't win the joust and the, the man that she doesn't love did and is claiming her sort of thing. But um, yes, and then another one that she did where um, it's, it's, a lady, it's called Lady Clare and it's Lady Clare's wedding morning. She's going to marry her childhood sweetheart and her nurse reveals to her that Lady Clare is not Lady Clare. She's actually the nurse's daughter. She swapped her at birth. And they're in, they're in what would be an, an embrace. I mean, he, she's just found her mother, but she's never had a mother. Um, but she's pushed, at the same time pushing her mother's away. She's got a hand on her face pushing her away because her mother's trying to persuade her not to tell her fiancé mm. who she really is because he thinks she won't marry her then. And Lady Clare is making this determination that she is going to own her own identity and she is going to tell him. And, you know, if he's not going to marry her because she's not posh, um, then there it is. But of course, that has all sorts of uh, resonances with Elizabeth's own situation with Gabriel, um, his his family's, um, you know, opposition to their relationship and so on because of the difference in class. And so they, although they are very small, and as you say, uh, they are, they seem very sort of romantic and otherworldly, these, um, these medieval scenes, uh, they, they were psychologically so much more intimate than art had been before. I mean, the thing I always say about Praphelites is this is the moment where art gets personal. You know, this is obviously 50 years before Freud, but I think it's that sort of new psychological intensity and finding ways that art can communicate psychological uh, crises and adventures and... Um, there's 21 kisses in the show, for example. I mean, you've been very um, adamant that this is an exhibition that is really demonstrating how radical and avant-garde uh, the Rosettis were and you know how, how they were really rebelling against the, the, the Royal Academy and the status quo. So, so apart from this 
as as you've said so talked so eloquently about this the subject matter being so personal and going much deeper what was it about the 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 painting that was really standing out and differing from 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 what was on offer that's that's a really good question it's the it's the bodies and the body language and their their understanding of um well their fascination with um these personal moments um, there's a beautiful little drawing by Gabriel that he did when he was 16, um, which um, is that when we, we didn't realise till we actually hung it on the wall that it's actually, we thought it was a woman with her cradling her baby, singing the baby a song, but actually she's breastfeeding the baby. And he's made this drawing of it, which is so tender and but freshly observed. So what they were fed up with was um, the amount of convention and fashions and rules and an empty style that there was in art. And they wanted something authentic. And the way they did that was to um, bring into art their lived experience. Basically painted things as they saw them, like this beautiful, like this young woman breastfeeding her baby. But they also painted things as they felt them. Um, so they are exploring things like be- becoming pregnant and being abandoned, which, you know, that so many Christina Rossetti's poems are often about that. Loss, um, losing someone you love. Again, Christina Rossetti's Remember Me is sort of one of the most famous explorations of, of that. Um, those sort of existential human crises and, and experiences um, that that authenticity that comes into their work that that's what was really different. I think what's so interesting as well is that how this exhibition very much is completely tied in with with the poetry too, because you have created a special uh, book of poetry, haven't you? Tell us about that because that's that's something uh, you rarely see an art gallery do. It's always fascinated me how how enriching the poetry is and the other way and the other and in the other direction and and I thought how can we bring the poetry into the exhibition without asking people just to endlessly read things on walls so you can read things on walls and I've been quite surprised by how much people like to read things on walls um so the what two th- two things we did was Amy Key edited for us the poet Amy Key edited for us uh, a, a a little collection just like a kind of a sampler really of the poems of Elizabeth Christina and Gabriel together which was really nice to do and then we also uh, introduced into the space these I think they're called sound showers so they're these little um, s- circles that you can just stand on, you can just fit on. And when you stand in the middle of them, even if you're right next to them, you can't hear it. But when you stand in the middle, it's like the poet is speaking in your head. Christina's poems are read very kindly for us by Di- by the actor Diana Quick. Oh, amazing. And, to, to, and, she, oh, and when, when she read them, I, I heard things in the poem I'd never heard before. Um, it was it was like goose pimples. But, and then the, we've got two poems by Gabriel, um, which are read by Bill Nye really kindly. Yeah. And equally, um, they're both fantastic at getting these killer last lines that, that they do. So, and one, a few people have said to me that what they like to do is stand on the circle and listen to the poem four times facing in four different directions so they can look at different things as they listen to the poems. Amazingly enough, Diana Quick was our very first guest on this podcast when we started. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, I know. She she was talking about a one-woman show she was doing in lockdown then. 
which involved just... Oh, it was amazing, yeah. that show. Yeah. yeah. She was yeah. our very, very first guest, so how wonderful that here oh, we are oh, oh. for three years <laughs> later. I, d- I went to the opening, but I didn't... Uh, obviously, it was so crowded that I didn't see the uh, poetry circle that I should stand in. And, yes, I think it's... I think the pre-Raphaelites... I mean, I thought... I think Carol's done an amazing job of convincing me to take them more seriously. But um, <laughs> I think you also do really have to... Like all... Uh, art appreciation if I can put it that way you really have to understand the stories behind mm. the paintings to really appreciate them yes yes which, which you've and given us so thank you so much thank you it's been my, my pleasure next week we're going to be talking about books because it's that time of year again when the women's prize for fiction is announced we're going to be talking to the chair of the judges the well-known broadcaster television presenter and endurance athlete Louise Minchin and her fellow judge Arinson Okoji about the six finalists. They include Maggie O'Farrell and Barbara King-Solver, alongside three debut novelists. Yes, and I'm very excited to be hearing what they have to say, as I've read two out of the six books on the shortlist. One, The Marriage Portrait by the brilliant Maggie O'Farrell, and second, a very haunting first novel, which I've just read, called Black Butterflies by Priscilla Morris, set against the siege of Sarajevo, and I loved it. So if you want your summer reading sorted, don't fail to tune in next week. That's it for another episode of Breakout Culture, but please don't forget to visit countryandtownhouse.com where you'll find the latest edition of the magazine and our sister podcast, House Guest with Carol Lynette, in which she talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. If you enjoyed today, please make sure you follow us or subscribe. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we'd love you to leave us a rating and a review as it really helps others to find the show. And if there's anything at all in the arts and culture landscape you think we should be talking about or investigating, please send me an email to charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk and don't forget to follow Country and Townhouse on social media. You can find the links to all our accounts in the podcast show notes. We'll be back on air with a new podcast at the same time next Friday. Have a lovely weekend. Goodbye.